Welcome to the Point Noted Podcast with your host, Johnny B, and co-host who shows up whenever he wants to, former NFL player, Rashad Barksdale. It's raw, unfiltered, and no topic is off-limit. We talk sports, entertainment, culture, and a whole lot of random shit. Let's get to the point. Point on that podcast. You're hanging out with your host, Johnny B. Our guest today is an uh, immigration expert, guru, uh, master, everything you can think of. Uh, I'm glad to have uh, Tamina Watson on the show. Tamina, how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. And what a lovely intro. Thank you. Uh, I didn't think I'd do enough. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we can go through your resume and I can start naming more titles and more honorable stuff, you know? Oh, you're so kind. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, so um, how are you? Where are you? You in uh, Seattle? I'm in Seattle, Washington. Uh, I'm in a. Uh, I work in downtown Seattle, and I live in a place called called Mercer Island, which is about twenty minutes away from downtown Seattle. Mercer Island. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. How big is that? You know, it's not a very big island. You know, it's just off the um, you know I ninety bridge, but it's a, it's okay. a good location because it's sort of in between, um, you know, the east side, which what we call east side, but it's a nice central location that you can okay. zip into town or zip onto the other side and not <laughs> face too much traffic. So it's a, okay. it's a good place. Oh, okay. How's the weather out there? Because you know, all of us that doesn't live in Seattle, we always hear it's always raining. Don't go to Seattle. How's the weather? Uh, it's 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 generally true, but today was a very nice sunny day, mm. and yesterday was sunny too. When the sun shines, I have to say, there's no place like Seattle. Um, really, but we do we do endure the rain for a long wow. period in the year <laughs> to get well, to the sunny spot. <laughs> well, we might ask it that you guys only say that to keep people away from coming. Uh, well, there is know. that. <laughs> <laughs> Which and it works because for the longest time I was I had no interest in visiting Seattle until until I had going for a wedding a few years ago. And I'm like, man, it's not even raining. I've been here all week. There's been no <laughs> drop of rain. I've been missing out on this beautiful place, you know. Uh, well, uh, uh, you know, um, lies are working then. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I got to do some kayaking and enjoy myself. It was it was beautiful. Definitely look look forward to uh, to going back out there. Uh, so you are a lawyer, immigration mm-hmm. lawyer. That's right. Um, when did you know you want to be a lawyer? Do you know, I grew up in the UK, in London, and mm-hmm. uh, I think from, I mean, whatever my first memory was, I can't remember not wanting to be a lawyer. I think I've always wanted to be a lawyer. And really? in the UK, the lawyer, the, um, the profession is a little different to what it is here. In the UK, you can be a, a trial lawyer or a transactional lawyer. The trial lawyer is a barrister and okay. a, a transactional lawyer is a solicitor. And I always grew up wanting to be a barrister. And I, I essentially became a barrister in the UK. But as I was becoming a barrister, I met my husband, who is American. And you know, I fell in love, I had my sleepless in Seattle moment, and then eventually moved here and retrained to be a, an attorney here, and eventually fell into immigration law. Oh, okay, nice, nice, very nice. Is there, is there like a big difference between uh, what you know about, you know, the schooling system uh, here in the States being a lawyer in the UK? Very different, actually. And, you know, COVID-19 has brought some interesting issues up for that. In the US, you go to law school for um, three or four years after you graduate. So you it's a postgraduate degree. And mm. in the US, once you graduate, you take the bar exams and then you have a license to practice law. In the UK, you can actually do an undergraduate degree in um, law itself. You don't have to do that as a you know, in any other subject, you can go directly to law. But law okay. school in the UK is really to teach you the practice of law, not the academics. Okay. And so, um, but once you finish law school, you still do not have your license to practice. You have hmm. to do an apprenticeship. And if you're a transactional lawyer, you do two years of a, apprenticeships. And if you are a 
trial lawyer, you do it for one year. So a barrister does a pupillage for one year and a solicitor does a traineeship for two years. And after each of those practical trainings, a bit like a residence that a, a doctor would do, then mm-hmm. you get a license to practice. So the training process is very different. And under COVID-19, um, just last week, actually, There are two states in the United States, and one of them is Washington, where I live, uh, that the local Supreme Court basically said, oh, you know what, COVID-19 means that we will um, waive the bar exam requirement. Mm. And that has a lot of mixed reaction because right. when you come out of law school, the bar exams uh, is a way to uh, distinguish those who would really be you know, pass the, passing the bar exam has a lot of value. And, right. it, you know, we doubt the people that wouldn't necessarily get it. And there's been debates on both sides of it. Um, and, you know, only two out of the 50 states have allowed the waiving of the bar exams. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next few months because... So you are against it? I'm actually against it because, you know, any profession, whether it's a doctor, an architect, a nurse, a CPA uh, and lawyers in general, we all have to go through professional exams because there are a lot of professional issues you need to know and prove you know before you get into that profession. So in my Mm. personal opinion, people should have bar exams. But, you know, I didn't make the decisions and I don't really have an answer. Right, right. Just going with it (laughs) And you mentioned two states are so far allowing you to waive those those bar exams. What states are those, do you know? So it's our state, Washington state. I cannot remember the second one, but I can email that to you later if you want to. Turn, okay, you know, sounds good. Out. Oh, not a big deal. Just passing along to mm-hmm. law friends I have if they want to go that route. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but I, but I ask you this. So you know, the two states are giving you an opportunity to, to to skip the bar. If I live in New York, but they don't have a waiver, can I go to Washington State and take the bar exam? Does that does that work? Um, my guess is no. I don't no, know what okay. rules are. My guess is that you were doing the law degree in that particular state okay. and you were going to take the bar exams in that state. I don't really know what the pre- prerequisites would be, but I can't imagine that you can suddenly fly over and say, oh, I'm here, you know, <laughs> waiting in. <laughs> well, you know, there, there That's was, a good right, question. Right. <laughs> hey, there are those out there that will try to take advantage of the, of the situation and find a loophole in all these rules, so. Seriously, you never yeah. know. I mean, so you got to ask. Somebody might be listening and say, hey, I, I know a cousin of mine that doesn't <laughs> like to study. Maybe he wants to move to Washington State for a couple of months and then, you know, yeah. uh, put, right, and try not to take the take the bar. So, <laughs> but if you were, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure you've dealt with uh, law students or lawyers from the UK and from the United States. Um, is there like a, do you notice like a big difference, by the way, in like, you know, the preparation to being a lawyer? Uh, yes. Uh, in, in Well, let me put it this way. Yes and no. In okay. the UK, when you are preparing to be, let's say, a barrister, what I was doing, I, you know, really checked all the boxes. You have to get this experience and that experience. And, you know, you really want to check all those boxes. And those boxes are similar in the US too, but they're not necessarily exactly the same. Um, And the terminology is different. When I was getting experiences in the UK, I was a legal assistant um, for many years, you know, in their various different, you know, law firms. And in the UK, a legal assistant is a paralegal. In the US, a legal assistant is a secretary who's, you know, normally just photocopying. And so Mm. when I moved here, you know, I only (laughs) learned about this later. I was sharing my resume, you know, I'm legal assistant, legal assistant, and boom, I'm a lawyer. And, you know, my resume, I don't think made sense to people, but I didn't really know that. And so when I took the bar exams and I was waiting for a job, and I had also just moved here, you know, a year before that. So I just got my green card and I had 
hadn't actually worked anywhere quite yet. And so while I was in between jobs, I signed up with a temping agency. And, you know, they get, they saw my resume and put me in a legal assistant position. In my mind, I was going to be a paralegal. And so when mm. they gave me a legal assistant job, I was so excited and so happy. Right. And I went to my first <laughs> job and they stood me near the, par- uh, the, the photocopying machine. And that's when it dawned on me that my resume really reads very differently. <laughs> Right. <laughs> to what yeah, I thought Americans. it was reading. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it definitely didn't sound like a big difference there. Uh, and then there were la- language differences too. I mean, you know, we all know that the UK English, US English, there are differences. We say, you know, tomato and, you know, Americans say tomato. But there are actual <laughs> words that are the same in, in legal language that okay. mean different thing things. So for example, um, in in the US there is a world word called remand and uh, in, in the in the legal uh, world. And remand means that a higher court is sending the case back to a lower court. Mm. We're remanding the case back to the lower court. In the US and I uh, in the UK where I practiced criminal law in my very early days, remand means basically putting a a hold on the case. So you're having a continuation. And the remand means you're either remanding in custody or remanding on bail. So that, you know, that client is either going to be having their case, you know, put on, you know, it's postponed until uh, while he is in in custody in jail or while he's at home on bail. And so when I was reading for the bar in the US, I had to have a dictionary next to me because right. I was reading these sentences with remand and I forget the other ones at the moment. And it didn't make sense to me. I was like, right. that doesn't make sense. So I had right. to have a dictionary. So there are um, differences that you wouldn't necessarily see on the face of it until you get into the nitty gritty of it. Right, right. Absolutely. I can see that. I can see the language barrier being there. In the UK, mm-hmm. I think there's a U in color and in the United States, there's no U in color. Oh, um, for sure. It took me a long know, so- time to get right. used to that yeah. <laughs> and then writing the date too you know and the dates right, are so date. important in in the in the legal world you know you have deadlines and so forth so it took a long time you know it's okay if it's uh 3rd of june 2012 you know because right. it's 3 and 6 and 2012 and while i'm thinking that's the 3rd of june in the u.s that's probably march march 6th you know, right. and yep. so that there's a confusion in that way. Like, what am I reading? And it's easier when it's you know the digits is over twelve because then you can right. make a make an understanding of it. But it right. took a long time to you know imagine. feel comfortable writing right. stuff. Right. And here you are, a great writer, right? Here you are now. You know, oh, well, you got through trying. all of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, somebody once told me that. Um, Having a law degree, it's one of the most important degrees you can have anywhere because it allows you to apply for any job. You, you qualify for it just based on the fact that you have a law degree. They assume you can do anything because you went through that. Um, what would be, what would you say is the most important thing? Like, let's say, you, you know, you just, you're getting a law degree, don't necessarily care about practicing or nothing like that. But to get through law school, what would be the most important thing that you think you need to have to get? Because I know like when you do medical school, I think you just have to have the ability to retain information. Because uh, mm-hmm. of all the papers and things you have to read. What about law? Is it is it about the same thing? Is just the ability to retain or or it's, just to be able to practice something in court? What is it? So for law, um, what is interesting to know about a law degree is yes, you have to retain information, but mm-hmm. what you learn from a law degree is critical thinking, analysis, seeing a problem and how to solve it and how to back up your arguments. And so I practice immigration law, for example, one of the things I say to my clients all the time is that, yes, the immigration service is taking a form from you. It's, let's call it a six-page form, and you have all these boxes to check, and you have to give them a, you know, a, a filing fee check, money. And what they do with that form is they take your money and they put you in a bucket. But Mm. that form is not going to win you the case. What is going to win you the case is the evidence, the supporting evidence that you're going to uh, provide. So, for example, you know, you're trying to argue um, 
you know, my dress is red. And, you know, you just saying that is not enough. You might need to send a photo of of your dress. My, I was wearing a red de- dress that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the common, you know, examples in immigration is um, you make enough money to support your spouse. How do you do that? You need your tax returns and you need your pay stubs and so forth. Often immigration is, or, or any legal matter is proving your point with the evidence, not mm. necessarily just by saying it. And you learn uh, the skills of presenting your case in, in, in law school. And I have to say that when you're in law school in, in the US, you know, you've gone through a degree and then you're doing a postgraduate degree to learn it. And so some people maybe are clued in. For me, I don't know if I was necessarily as appreciative of what I was learning until I started practicing. Because okay. that's when I was like, oh, yeah, that's what I, this is why right. I need it. Right. And so right. you have to think outside the box often. And the law degree teaches you those skills, which those skills. is why those skills are sought after no matter which job you go into. You you don't have to Absolutely. And if okay. you look at these politicians, for example, a lot of them do have law degrees because they're learning how to present your point, how to speak in public, how to argue your case. And, um, you know, law, learning the law is also about how to make the law, you know, right. how to use the law for the good of people. What is the problem of this community, this particular issue? How can we create laws and policies that will support uh, the downtrodden, you know, people who are hurting? And so uh, the law can be used for so much. And we are in a critical time in history, particularly in America, where the last two, three weeks we have seen unaccountable, um, illegal actions that are taken by people who are supposed to enforce the law, mm-hmm. you know, which has got, you know, uh, people, uh, the, the general public out there protesting. And right. so how do we uh, use the law for us? And therefore, law, the law degree really can be used in multiple ways uh, to do anything you want, really. What, do you, take your, you take your passion and you'll be able to lo- use the law that way. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the Supreme Court made the ruling uh, uh, striking down, blocking our, uh, the Trump administration's plan to uh, shut down DACA. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who don't know what DACA is, from my understanding, uh, it's just a deferred act, um, action for childhood arrivals. Uh, basically, it's the sins of the parents or the father, child, children, the kids are not going to pay for it. It's basically the way I interpret that. Is, you know, you come here with your parents illegally. Uh, you know, that's not your problem. They, they brought you here. You probably have no choice in coming anyway. So, uh, but I just want to ask you uh, more on the DACA um, mm-hmm. program is, why, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't understand. Why is the Trump administration so against it? Like what, I mean, what arm is it doing? And what arm is the kids doing being here? That's a really good question. Now, uh, there are two separate questions. What is DACA and what is, why is, does the Trump administration have a problem with it? Um, right. The easier question to answer is, why does the Trump administration have a problem with it? They simply have anti-immigrant policies from the get-go. And during the campaign rhetoric four years ago, we all remember, you know, how the president's um, campaign rhetoric was really bringing immigrants down. They are um, rapists, there are drug dealers, we're going to have a Muslim ban, uh, and so many things. You know, we're going to have mass deportation. Mm -hmm. And essentially, they are trying to have a nationalistic view of what America is, forgetting the fact that America is a melting pot, which, you know, was created by immigrants. We came from all different parts of the world and the founding fathers came from different parts of the world. Uh, If you're not Native American, then you are uh, a descendant of an immigrant. If you're not a first immigrant yourself. So um, that's the easier thing to answer. The Deferred Action Program, was created in 2012 by President Obama. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to essentially, um, basically create a pathway for children who came to the US, people who came to the US as children um, uh, before a certain uh, timeline, and that they were younger than 31 at the time of application. And deferred action is not really a status. A status is you have permission to be here and you can work and you you can attach, you know, 
a status is different from a deferred action. Deferred mm -hmm. action means we're not going to, we're going to defer your deportation, essentially. We we're going to defer any action we take against you because you're illegal. We're going to allow you to be here. So okay. really, there's no status that okay, is attached right. to the deferred right. action. But it did allow people to be here, permission to be here, and permission to work, um, you know, in the open. Of course, a lot of people have been working, had been working, um, you know, essentially under the table. It just brought them out. And so the Trump administration, in all the policies that I had one by one, starting from the Muslim ban, you know, the first week he was, he was in office to ch separating very small children, babies from their parents to mm -hmm. grown-up children. There's there's been a display of uh, um, hate, hateful and cruel treatment of immigrants. But coming back to DACA, you, what he did was he basically pulled the rug from out of them, saying we are going to make sure that this program doesn't exist anymore, and we're going to start taking steps to not have them. And one of the reasons DACA was created is because Congress, which is, you know, given the, the duty of making laws in this country, has been so divided over the last right. eight years that they yeah. have not come to any bipartisan agreement in what immigration reform should look like. Right. And DACA has other DACA recipients who are referred to as dreamers have been used as a pawn often that if you let me have my, you know, billions and billions of dollars for my wall, I'll give you, you know, some pathway for dreamers. But, you know, immigration law, if your listeners don't know, it's really a very, very complicated system where mm. the ankle bone is connected to the knee bone, to the hip bone, and so forth. And if you fix one thing without fixing the others, you're not going to be able to actually function still. And right. so this administration has used DACA as a pawn because they don't want to fix anything else. Mm. Um, and not in the way that would be humane and necessary for the country. They only want to fix it in the way that they can try to kick people out. And so there's been this very big divide in the Democrats and the Republicans in what immigration reform really means. And that's right. why... President Obama had to take things on, uh, you know, under his, um, you know, wings and essentially say, okay, well, this is a deferred action is a legal um, pathway. It already exists in law. And so I'm going to utilize this to give a benefit to uh, dreamers. And that's why this, uh, when the Trump administration took it away, there had been a number of cases, one after another in different states uh, for different reasons. And there were 26 states that said, well, if you give them status, if you give them a benefit, we have to fork out money for it, and we don't want to do it. And so that those cases eventually reached the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court yesterday didn't necessarily decide on whether DACA is legal or not legal. What the Supreme Court did was said, hey, you, administration, you took the, you pulled the rug from out of them, but you didn't give them good enough reasons. Right. If you're going to do that, you need to give reasons for it. And so they they left DACA in place, not because they made a decision on DACA itself, but they said procedurally, you were arbitrary and capricious in your actions. And right. now you have to, and so that's why there's been rejoice. But if people have been following the news, this morning, tr the Trump administration and Trump basically tweeted, I think, uh, is that of course. he's going he's gonna, to, you know, do more. Because essentially, if he can, give better explanations and he, if he gives, gives good reasons and he follows the, the pathway that he's supposed to, he may be able to um, stop DACA again. But one of the things that people need to know is we, we, we still need to go through a legal procedure. And even if he comes with a new executive order, that is likely to be litigated again. And, you know, before now in November, there's not enough time at least I think that he can stop DACA in its track right now. But what we need right in this moment is for Cong Congress to take action. We mm. need Congress to come together. We need all our senators, all our representatives, the House and the Senate to come together and have a comprehensive immigration reform that is um, bipartisan, 
and that is humane and is fit for a modern 2021 um, you know, era. The law that we have is from 1950s and 60s. They're so old. And if you think about your phone, for example, if you had a phone in the 1990s, it was a brick. And yeah, if you and had it's, a, it's, and it's not working today, I'm I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, and if you if you have a phone today, your phone is doing everything for you. It's your right. it's your camera, it's your you know, it's your note taker, it's your video, it's your TV, it's right. everything. If you just mm-hmm. think about the phone, how modern has it become in just twenty years? Yet right. our law has not kept up with you know, technology, the modern day of working, the systems that we have. And there are just so many things that have changed that require the law to keep up. And that's why we're failing as a a system and many things. We could be in a much better place economically if we had a better immigration system. And so this is an opportunity, and I'm very much a glass half full person, that this is an opportunity for people to come in and say, okay, we're the lawmakers. We're going to fix this now because if we don't, Trump is going to take this away again. Right. And, you know, you know, we'll see. So it's a very interesting question. I'm so glad you brought it up. But it's not over yet. Even though there was a lot of rejoice yesterday, uh, we still have to continue to advocate. We've still got to continue to talk to our senators, our representatives, and we've got to get the value of DACA folks, as well as immigrants in general out there. You know, COVID-19, I don't know if you were going to ask me this, but I'll just give you this example since we spoke about the phones. COVID-19 brought Um, unprecedented challenges for all of us, you, me, anybody listening, suddenly you're working from home, you may Mm -hmm. not have had a setup for working from home. But if you have children, your children are now school schooling from home homeschooling Mm. and that homeschooling is uh, for a lot of us dependent on the internet you know a lot of our children have had zoom meetings with their with their teachers teachers are emailing us um you know, content for schooling. And, you know, how do you even work? That's unprecedented challenges. And if you didn't have immigrants um, who are farming still, getting our fresh vegetables that were now, you know, in the grocery store, the only place we can actually go, um, we wouldn't have food on the table. If we didn't have the internet functioning in the way that it is, uh, with our phone networks, our cable companies working on it, we would not be able to work remotely. But who are the people managing these? There are a lot of high-skilled immigrants who are working behind the scenes that you don't even think about. Right. If you t- pick up your phone again, that hardware, software, and network. None of these would be functioning sufficiently if we didn't have high-skilled immigrants who are working behind the scenes. And if you think about entrepreneurs, people who have uh, come to this country um, and built big companies have hired people who have had jobs. And so immigrants really are the backbone of how society works. Yet this administration is um, not appreciating that. And, you know, COVID-19 has also been a vehicle for this administration to uh, fulfill some of the agenda that he has not been able to get through because Congress has stopped it. So, for example, um, you know, he you may remember this word. Do you remember the word chain migration? Chain migration, yep. Remember mm-hmm. that? And before, you know, the Trump administration came into office, did you really know that word? Probably didn't. And no. so he came in and this became, you know, regular language, chain migration. Of he course. didn't want family-based immigration to continue, even though the president's wife and in-laws and, you know, are other immigrants. people right. are immigrants. And so he wanted to stop family immigration. And the Muslim ban was one way of doing that. But he couldn't do that through Congress and various bills that he had presented. COVID-19 struck and suddenly there's a suspension of immigration. Mm. But that suspension was particularly for parents, um, for adult children and siblings. These were the criteria that we really didn't like in the chain migration scenario. So COVID-19 has become a vehicle for getting some of the agenda out there. And what we're expecting today, I am expecting a 5 p.m. bad news. By the way, this administration releases 
bad immigration news generally on a Friday, 5 p.m. And so I'm bracing myself for today. You know, I've got wow. my drinks and everything ready. That he is going to have a travel ban, COVID-19 travel ban on non-immigrant visas. That means um, H-1B visas. Mm -hmm. H2 visas, L visas. We don't know the the complete uh, array of visas that are going to be affected, but we know he hates student visas. We know he hates H1Bs. We we know he hates these types of visas, and we're expecting a ban to come down. And so we'll have to see what happens. But COVID-19 has been a, a vehicle for him to get his agenda out there. Wow, that's going to be really hard, especially for India and all the IT supply for the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very you know, much if the, so. If the H one visa actually gets banned, um, you know, and you know, in uh, in your conversation, I know you mentioned, um, you know, how we have to make bipartisan uh, laws and how things have to change in Congress. And one thing that struck my mind was, you know, one of the problems we have is, you know, we are a country with about median age being about thirty something, but we're being ruled by a bunch of men in their sixties. Um, mm-hmm. So Thank it's kind of hard. Much. Thank you, you know, very much. Yes, I mean that's a big problem. They they right. do not represent the population that we have now and the they, values they, that we exactly. have. Exactly right, right. So that makes it hard because the way they see things is from the old men, old women's point of view, and they refuse to change. Like Joe Biden refused to change about things he said. Mm-hmm. You know, apologize about things the way he felt back then. We still, me, still feel the same way. I uh, just, mm-hmm. you know, not going to make that a big deal. But mm-hmm. you know, so. And I think that's what has to change, you know. And in, in uh, we've had a lot of people come on the podcast. They're like, wanting for Senate and Congress, and they all like. And I mean, I had a 25 year old woman that came on. I had a 21 year old college student. Uh, you know, we had all this meet 30s. Just good to see the young folks, mm-hmm. just that wave again getting back. And hopefully, those guys can make it far enough to uh, to start affecting changes. Um, yeah. One more thing. And I, I don't want to, you know, I mean, AOC, uh, yeah. you know, the New York uh, House representative, right. uh, I mean, Alexandria Cortez, she's uh, definitely mm-hmm. an example of the type of uh, age group that we should be looking at and the yeah. uh, um, vitality of people that we need and people right. who really will fight for us. I mean, and so, yes, I 100% agree with you. We're not represented Absolutely. properly. Not well. And AOC, if you're listening, we love you on the show. Please come on the show. <laughs> yes, please come to the show. We, we would love to, to hear show. from you. <laughs> we would love to hear from you. I interviewed uh, one of uh, one of the senators of PA. She was I was in, she was endorsed by AOC. So I was like, please tell AOC to come on the show. <laughs> well, I like, hope she listens to this. <laughs> Hopefully she is. Um, but just to talk about that, I have uh, one more question of myself, and then I have a question from a, from a fan. Um, so we mentioned DACA being a deferred action, not a status, right? Is there anything in the plan, even though I know the president's administration is fighting uh, to pretty much knock down DACA right now? But, I mean, is there a plan to eventually go from a deferred action to just having these people have a legal status, like a permanent resident type of thing? Is that a plan for that? Is that where they're supposed to be going? Yes. Uh, and so that is exactly what we want Congress to do. And only okay. Congress can do that. Can do that. Mm-hmm. Because when when somebody has status, it's given through law. The law has to st- you know have it in black and white. Right. And because we have not had that agreement between the Democrats and the Republicans for all these years, um, we have not been able to get that status on paper. Uh, and, th- and that is why, because Congress doesn't make any decision, particularly when the word immigration gets into it. Um, Mm. You know, that's why President Obama did what he did. And this is why President Trump is writing executive orders left and right, because he's essentially saying, this is my power. I'm going to do this. um, And this is within the executive powers I have. So he's pushing the boundaries of what executive power is, which is why there's just litigation after litigation saying, no, Mm. you do not have the authority. But you're absolutely right. That is the path we need to do. Go go towards but only congress can give it to us yeah and if you are listening president please come on the show too Mm -hmm. um (laughs) so here's a question i have for you i'm gonna read this uh, question i have uh and the gentleman says i'm a i'm a DACA recipient and now i'm married to a citizen i'm in the middle of the green card process what are the chances of attending the interview here in the united states and not in my country um that's a really good question um if 
under the DACA program before, you know, uh, the rug was pulled under from under their feet, there was a process in which DACA recipients could actually leave the country on something called advanced parole, which okay. means we're going to give you permission to travel outside the country. And mm. if you were to come back in the country after that short trip, your status is changed on paper. You have now been seen by an immigration officer as you entered the country, and that gives you the privilege to get a green card in the U.S. without leaving the U.S., if that makes sense. Right. Now, if a DACA recipient such as your your listener has been in the U.S. since he was a little child and hasn't left the country after receiving DACA, when the time comes for an interview, he actually does need to go outside the country to get uh, the green card. Because uh, what happens is you have to be inspected at the time of arriving in the U.S., if you do not get inspected, that means an immigration officer saw you, you know, looked at your passport, said, you know, gave you permission to come in. That's that's called inspected. And a lot of times the people who are DACA recipients were not inspected. They had mm. come into the U.S., you know, as a child, parents, you know, crossed the border. And if that's the situation of this person, then they do have to leave the country potentially. And this is a generic, um, you know, situation. Please do not take it as legal advice, but this is a generic right. situation of what happens. However, if that DACA recipient had come from, let's say, you know, the UK, like who, who was that um, uh, celebrity from sh Chicago? He's a, he's a um, rapper, I think. I forget the name of uh, him. He, there are people who come to the U.S. as children legally, like they got on a plane with their parents and then stayed here. The difference between that person and a child who um, crossed the border with mom and dad is that they were inspected. The person who got on the plane and got here and then just stayed here, never left after right. their permission was expired, that person can still get a green card without leaving the country. Okay. So the difference, the key difference is how did you enter the country? Were you inspected or were you not inspected? If you were mm. not inspected, you have to leave the country and get a green card. If you were inspected, generally you can get a green card while being here. But there okay. are nuances in that, but that was a generic overview. Okay. All right. I, got, I have another one for you. Um, uh, and this says, I've uh, been in the United States for 30 years. Uh, married with four kids. I went through a divorce. Uh, I got a DUI. I want to apply for my citizenship, but you know I haven't yet. Would the DUI, would the DUI affect me being a citizen? Uh, you know, he came here legally as his green card and all of that. He just never applied for his citizenship and been here over thirty years. So he's saying, would it matter that I have a DUI? Would that affect me, or would I need a lawyer? It's a, it's a very good question. Um, and again, this is not legal advice to him directly. This is generic guidance. Generic, right, um, right. When you have a DUI, uh, it doesn't make you what's called inadmissible, meaning that you cannot be in the US. You, so for somebody who has a DUI, they can still actually get citizenship. But there are okay. timings involved. You know, you when did you have that um, uh, charge against you? When did you have that conviction? When was a sentence over? There are some timelines involved. Okay. And so for this listener, the answer is generally yes. And he should take all his documentation and go to see a lawyer to confirm all of these timelines and whether he can apply now. If he's been in the U.S. and this DUI was a very long time ago, chances are he could be eligible now. And one of the things I say to anybody who's eligible for citizenship already is they really should apply for citizenship. Right. If you've been here for so long, do you really see yourself living outside? Anywhere anymore? else, right. Impossible, yeah. right? You know, you have your life here, your work here, your children here. Chances are you'll be here. Um, but there are reasons why people don't do it. You know, they feel strongly about their own country or they <sighs> might be losing their citizenship. Like India, China, they say, if you take citizenship elsewhere, we're not going to, you know, let you come, you know, help keep our citizenship. So there are practical reasons. But, uh, you know, really, there are so many 
many security reasons for um, getting citizenship. If you have um, a DUI, for example, or, you know, DUI could become a big, if you know, accidentally become a much worse situation. What if somebody died in that accident? That's a different scenario altogether, you know, and that be, then that becomes, I forget the names of these charges, but it um, could be some sort of, you know, unintentional murder of, um, mm. you know, um, some sort of homicide uh, charge could, and, and that's inadvertent. You didn't, you never intended to do that. But bigger criminal charges can actually even get your uh, green card at risk. But a simple issue of going to travel uh, because your parents might be sick and you've right. been outside the country for, you know, over six months or maybe over 12 months, you right. now are at risk of losing your green card. But the right. biggest thing is that if you're living in this country and you've been here for 30 years, your children are going to school, the school district, you might have some opinions about how your school, your children are being schooled. You might right. have opinions about your local area, about the trash or, you know, are they taking it out in time? Or, you know, you might want to, there are voting rights that come with citizenship and you know if there was any reason to get citizenship it's to have your voice heard you cannot have your voice heard unless you are a citizen citizen. so I would urge anybody that's listening that if you're eligible for citizenship go just apply it might take a long time and the other there are two other reasons for getting citizenship by the time you're ready to apply for citizenship uh, processes and procedures might have changed. That person who's been here as a a green card holder for 30 years, Mm -hmm. when he was, you know, first eligible, it might have been a three-page form. But now it's a 20-plus form, page Mm -hmm. form that is very complicated. And the fees have gone up, you know, um, slowly, slowly. And they are actually scheduled to go up, they're going to double or triple, actually. The the current fee for the government is um, just under $700. Mm. Um, They are going to become, I forget what it is, it's double or triple, you know, and it's going to happen pretty soon, anytime between June and and November, and probably, you know, closer in the summer than the fall, because now USCIS, the agency that gives immigration benefits, Mm. uh, have said that, oh, you know, we're running out of money. We're going to have to furlough 1,500,000 people and we just don't have, you have to bail us out. And so there are many reasons for people to just use the law as it is. Don't wait for the law to get worse when it comes to your turn. Um, And so I urge people to apply for citizenship if you are eligible. Okay, absolutely. And hopefully uh, any of the listeners that wants to go to uh, to Minnewatton Immigration, they will get some uh, point of the podcast discount. Uh, <laughs> yes, we'll do that. Yeah. We'll do that. Absolutely. <laughs> I have another question. Um, so this one says, you know, I've been in the U.S. for uh, over ten years. Um, when I filed for my fiance out of country, it took about two years to to get her here. Um, is there a reason why the process takes so long? Because I've heard other people that actually gone through this. Is that is there a way to make that a much more quicker process? That's a really good question. And that processing time actually does uh, fluctuate. Um, and it depends on when this person had gone through the process. In, in, there are two ways in which, you know, your loved one can come to the U.S., either on a fiancé visa. And, you know, there, there's actually a show called 90 Days Fiancé, if anybody's interested. Um, but, you know, it's it's an interesting concept. It's, but And they're showing the lives of people, not necessarily the legal process. But for the person to come to the U.S., the U.S. citizen, and only a U.S. citizen can apply for a fiancé visa, has to apply and show that they are eligible to marry, they have a promise of marriage, and uh, they have all the things that the government wants to see. And it goes from, you know, USCIS, this big agency in the U.S., Mm -hmm. and it goes to this timeline. And think of the, in my head, it's a factory you know, and they could go, you make a pile of cases. And, you know, if you imagine how many cases get filed every day, your case is really at the bottom of a very, very, very big pile. And for them to get to you, it takes that much time. But once USCIS gets to you, when you become at the top of the pile file, if that makes sense, um, it's already been a year plus. And when your case has been approved, 
it then has to go to the embassy. And there is a lot more time involved in that from, you know, going from point A to B, there are procedural steps that happen internally. And once it gets to the embassy, the embassy has its own, you know, 10 steps to take. And so all of that adds up to approximately two years at the moment. And that's for a fiancé visa. The If you were already married, the process is very similar too. You, you know, file for the form in the U.S. and eventually it goes to a middle agency that collects a lot more documents again. And that middle agency sends it to the embassy. The embassy does its own 10 steps process. And I'm just saying 10 steps to, you know, make it easy to understand. But right. there are, you know, whatever steps they need to take. And all of that again amounts to two years but remember COVID-19 has shut down all the embassies around the world and they have been shut since what March I want to say and so um, imagine all the cases that had to be postponed between March and, and June now it's June end of June they still haven't opened that's three months of cases and so all of this backlog is definitely going to add to anybody who's still waiting and we mm. really don't know what processing times will look like once we come out of COVID-19 so right. two years could become three potentially you know wow. longer we really right. just don't know we have to wait and see but right. I will say that we have a blog on our website called Watson. If you go to our website, WatsonImmigrationLaw.com, mm -hmm. subscribe to our blog. We write about these things all the time because these are the issues that are important to our clients. And there's just so much news out there that you don't necessarily know what applies to you and what doesn't. You'll see an executive order today or in the next, next week and suddenly you'll be like, gosh, does that travel ban apply to me? And so we write about these things because all of these things apply to our clients. Not every single one person is affected by every single uh, problem, but we right. write about it so it's understandable. So I would um, invite your listeners to sign up to our blog at Watson Immigration Law. Absolutely. WatsonImmigrationLaw.com. Uh, you guys go ahead and sign up to that so you can get some uh, blog information and you have a lot of good information on that. Um, so I have another question for you regarding um, just bringing people over. Mm -hmm. uh, is that, do I need to have a certain amount of money in the bank, certain type of job in order for me to apply to bring a friend over from another country, to bring a relative over, a cousin over, uh, or even a fiance like we, just talked, like we just talked about? But more importantly, anybody, a friend, a cousin, a relative, do I need to have some amount of money in the bank? Do I need to have a certain type of job? Is it like what is required for me to do that or just being a citizen is sufficient enough that I can get him here and tell him I can take care of him? That's a really good question. So I'm going to go back to chain migration again. Okay. Um, only certain people, certain U.S. citizens can apply for certain people. So if you have one of the misinformation that this administration had spread with the word chain migration, well, suddenly there was this misunderstanding that you can apply for anybody. And mm. the answer is you cannot apply for your friend and your cousin and your grandma and, you know, anybody that you would like. It's okay. only limited to certain relatives, your parents, your siblings, your children. Mm. And so you cannot apply for that aunt who's, you know, the love of your life. You simply cannot do that. And you cannot mm. apply for your grandma. And so if you have the friend you want to sponsor, you cannot sponsor for a green card. Um, mm. So there, the who you can sponsor is already limited. Uh, in terms of funds, yes, absolutely. It has always been a fundamental requirement that if you are um, helping a family member migrate to the U.S., you have to be financially responsible for them. And that is an age-old law. It has always been there. You as, you know, um, let's take Johnny. If you had um, your mom in, let's say, you know, in India, you would have to show that you are uh, earning X amount of money. Now, what is X amount of money? The you have to show that you are making uh, 125% over the poverty guideline. So okay. the poverty, the, so the po there is a, um, a chart that is 
given out every year, depending on, you know, various economic factors. And uh, I can't remember what the current numbers are, but it's done by household. If you, it's Johnny and your wife, there are two people in your new house, uh, but you're, you're, you're going to be sponsoring your mom in India. You have to look at the household number of three. What is the income, the minimum income that you need to show for three people in that house? Okay. And so and so so forth. So let's say I have my husband and my two children. I have already a family of four, and I'm invite you know sponsoring my mom. I have to look at the line item for household of five people. Am I making mm. enough money for that? And you know, for five people, it's probably thirty-seven thousand dollars a year. You know that for example, you know it's not. You don't have to be working at Apple and T-Mobile and all of those high-tech jobs. Right. Um, for example. Uh, so that has been the age-old law. But February 24, 2020, after much litigation, just because, you know, this guy, as I t- talked about executive orders and memos and regulations that were drafted without Congress, this administration put into place a new regula- reg- regulation, uh, which is commonly known as public charge. That means that the administration doesn't want to see anybody who's coming to the U.S. ultimately go to the public pocket to get, you know, food stamps and housing benefits and so forth. So they want to see that not only you, the sponsor, Johnny, the sponsor is sponsoring mom. They don't only want to see your income. They still want to see that. But now they want to see mom's income. But not limited to income only. They want to see mom's health her age, her skills, her education, her language abilities, uh, and a number of things. And so as of February 2020, the bar to what you need to show financially has shot up exponentially. And it is designed to deny cases. And there are two ways of getting green cards. You know, earlier you talked about your DACA uh, example. If that person is in the U.S. uh, for the interview, there's one particular form to show for him uh, of his income, his savings. And that's going to include show me your credit report, show me, um, you know, your education documents. The credit report is one of the biggest hurdles uh, because if you've been in the U.S. without a social security number or real income, income that is on the table, you're, it's difficult for you to have a credit score um, and just having these simple things. Uh, and if you're at the embassy, you don't necessarily need to show the credit score and so forth. So the documentation is a little bit less, but the standard of looking at you as an individual and just making a subjective you know, opinion that, oh, you know, I think you're going to claim public benefits sometime in your life. And the test is not today. The test is any time in your lifetime. And so the people that are most at risk are older people and younger people. Um, And so because this was implemented just before the world stopped through COVID-19, we don't know what this is really going to look like when officers actually look at the paperwork. And so we will know the repercussion of the new rule, um, I would say, sometime at the end of the year, beginning of next year. And we we will very likely see a high number of denials because they only need to pick on any one of these things. And, uh, you know, it's designed to deny. It's not designed to say, oh, really, you know, we we want you here. So, again, it goes towards the mission of this administration to cut immigration, basically. And this alone will cut immigration big time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I got one more for you um, before we we dive into some more fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So, a user said, if, if I get married to an American citizen today, uh, let's say Monday. I got uh, married to Mexican on Monday, and I get arrested Friday. Cannot be deported. Uh, yes and no. It depends on how you entered the country. Firstly, 
Okay. Uh, so if you came here on what's called, uh, people generally refer to it as Esther. And so uh, if somebody came, Esther means that you just showed your passport and the United States and your country has an agreement and, you know, each other can show each other's passport to just go there and just have a, you know, visit. And so, for example, when you go to Canada, most of your listeners might have gone to Canada. You just show your passport and come back. That And Canadians can do the same. And so that process not necessarily for Canadians, but other countries, it's called visa waiver. And the waiver means you're waiving a lot of rights. And waiving those rights also includes being in front of a judge. So in theory, this administration has definitely used this more and more. They can do something called expedited removal. So the arrest by itself doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be deported. The arrest means that, uh, and there has been a lot of litigation uh, on this issue, that ICE can be informed. And, you know, you might have heard the word sanctuary city. Yeah. And that has been part of the general vocabulary over the last three years. Sanctuary City has really been that whether the police, the local police are cooperating with ICE. And a lot of cities will either tell ICE that we have somebody without status or, you know, immigrant here. uh, And those in the sanctuary cities, they don't necessarily have the cooperation with ICE. So how you entered is one of the issues, but what happens to you will also depend on where you live. But let's say you are arrested and now you are going to immigration court. By virtue of being married, uh, you are showing you have a ground of relief, meaning you have a pathway to getting a green card. And often that will allow some time to take some steps to uh, file the paperwork that is necessary to potentially get you out on bond. So that scenario could have a number of outcomes based on a number of different factors. And so it's it's a case-by-case scenario. And so there's no real, you know, this is definitely the way this is going to go because it really will depend on those case-by-case issues right so best advice really to add to it is just stay out of trouble (laughs) yes definitely stay out of trouble you know a lot of people come to the u.s and you know they do fall in love and um, they eventually want to get their green card while being here and one of the changes that also happened under this administration is you know intent when you come to the u.s let's say as a tourist you have the intention of being a tourist. The intention is to temporarily visit, go to Hawaii, go to Disneyland, go wherever, see your family, your friends, and then go back home. That's your temporary intent. But you might have also come to see a loved one some with a romantic relationship, and you might have come and gone to the US many times, but suddenly this is the right time to get married. And often if you change your mind, uh, there is something called the 30-60 day rule that if you got married after 60 days, then uh, it was presumed you really didn't have that intent when you arrived. Okay. What this administration did was they changed that 60 days to 90 days. Saying so if you changed your mind within 90 days, then we will we will assume that you came here with this intent. And the 90 days is very um, interesting because I just mentioned to you visa waiver, people who are coming just, look, you know, waving the passport, so to speak. They only will have 90 days to be here. And so they took that timeline and were strategic in increasing that period in which they can impute intent, meaning they're going to presume that you had intent. And so um, when it comes to immigration law, not only are you looking at how you entered, you are also looking at when you entered and when you uh, intend to get married and all of these things, because it can make or break your case. Right. Right. Wow. That I do not know that I have to definitely pass those numbers up there. 30, 60, and now you say 90? Yeah. Uh, so really, people should walk away thinking, you, you know, the intent issue is um, if you change your status, let's say you even came here as a tourist and you got a job, not just mm-hmm. to get a card, you get a job here. Um, and you came here on a B2 visa because you were given, you know, six months to stay here. And right. then you get a job. You cannot if, if you try to 
apply to your visa status to change to a work visa and you did that within the 90 days that also will have problems because they'll they'll say well you came here to get that job so intent is so critical in whatever visa category that you have you must maintain that intent at the time of arrival um Mm. And so, you know, people should definitely consult an immigration attorney, um, you know, before they take any steps. But one of the things that, you know, it just occurs to me to tell you, I don't know if you'll ask me this later, but it occurs to me to mention it. When you're here in in the U.S. as a tourist, COVID-19 has brought a different issue um, that people haven't necessarily realized yet. Um, When you, there is a big correlation between tax laws and immigration laws for immigration purposes if you're in the you 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 cannot be in the u.s for more than six months um in different scenarios particularly as a tourist um but and you leave the country you know you left the country and you're all all good but For tax purposes, if you're here for uh, more than six months, I don't know what those timelines are, you can be subject to U.S. taxes just as a tourist. Okay. And so a lot of people who have come here and then got stuck because they couldn't get on their plane back, their countries have stopped, you know, letting people in. That COVID-19 has brought up a lot of different practical issues. There are simply no flights or if there is a flight, it's going through a, a stopover at a country where you can't stop. You're not allowed to go there. These practical difficulties are actually going to make people stay here longer than they really intended. And that can have tax consequences. And, you know, I'll take a moment to do a plug for my own podcast, which is called Tamina Talks Immigration. And uh, I will be releasing a a podcast episode in the next few weeks in which I talk to a tax accountant who will be talking about some of these issues. What are the consequences of, um, you know, your tax liability, even if you think you have no tax liability at all because mm. you're a tourist. Okay. Wow. All right. Interesting. Yeah. I would definitely uh, have to catch that episode. I'm glad you brought up the tax information because I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, you, you're visiting the United States and you have the ability to work mm-hmm. uh, and you make some money. Obviously, you pay tax when you get your paycheck during the time that you're here. But how can you file for tax when you were gone? Because uh, your visiting time is over. Are you still required to file for tax for the time that you were here, even though you're no longer in the States? Well, one thing I will add as a prerequisite. When you're coming here to the U.S., you will be designated the visa type. And if you are here on a tourist visa, you are not allowed to have any intention to live here or any intention right. to work here. And therefore, if you come here as a tourist, absolutely do not work and absolutely do not intend to live here. But work is an absolute no-no. People, no, if no. you get found out, uh, um, you will be banned from coming back again. And so in those right. scenarios, you simply cannot work. But if you have a work visa... You are allowed to work and you do need to pay taxes. Um, one of the questions that has come up, interestingly enough, in the COVID-19 scenario is I'm here on a work visa, you know, and I am suddenly not working. What are my options? And also, can I claim unemployment taxes uh, benefits? Now, the first part to that is, can I stay here? Typically, the answer is maybe. Because if you are on a work visa in the U.S., you have to be working to be in status. Okay. And in some visa categories like H-1B, if you've been terminated, you are allowed to be here for 60 days. That's called grace period. So some you that's a very tight, you know, very it's a hard deadline. You cannot be here for more than 60 days without working. But you can be here. And so that follows the question of can I claim unemployment benefit? And the answer has been yes, because unemployment uh, unemployment benefits is money has been taken out of your paycheck. Right. And put into that little, you know, um, jar from which you are now collecting. So unemployment benefits are allowed, uh, but some of it depends on your state as well. But the bigger question that has come from that is, okay, yes, I'm allowed to get unemployment benefit, but will that make me a public charge? You and I just spoke about the public charge issue, the new rule that went into effect in February. Mm-hmm. And the answer is that, you know, the unemployment benefit should not make you 
a public charge because that right. is not necessarily public money. However, right. some states have public funds in those insurance. So it's it's a good idea to check with somebody who knows. So it's a generic answer I'm giving. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, unemployment benefits should not make you a public charge. Okay. All right. Sounds good. I'm pretty sure a lot of people listening will benefit from hearing this information and getting the details. Um, Tamina, I, I truly appreciate your time. I mean, I've, I feel like I have so much, uh, learned so much and can go on and go on and talking about immigration law. And I could talk uh, all day too. <laughs> Keep me coming and I'll give you the answers. <laughs> exactly. Which is more reason, more reason why I got to tune into your podcast uh, as well so I can learn more stuff. But I, I'm pretty sure I would love to bring you back and we can do more. You know, oh, I would I, love that. I, I would, would love have, to do You've asked some really interesting questions. And I'll also um, tell people that I'm actually working on a podcast series that will be released in, in July sometime. We're okay. working on them. And it's going to be a very interesting series because it's not necessarily going to be focused only on immigration and immigration law itself, but it's okay. going to focus on some of the lawyers who have made big differences and impacts um, okay. in, in a very meaningful way in our communities that have been, you know, suffering from the new policies that this administration wow. has been throwing at wow. us. So I, I would love for your listeners to join in. I would love for you to listen. And when that Absolutely. comes up, you know, it's uh, it will be an interesting listen for anybody, actually. Absolutely. I, I would definitely join the blog so I can get those information. Uh, I have all your contacts and all your people's contacts. So we'll be able to exchange emails. You know, so I'm still, still updated enough to know on uh, what's going on with that podcast. And I can start sharing it with my listeners as well. Uh, but I truly appreciate you uh, taking your Friday afternoon when you can be at home relaxing, having a glass of wine. Um, you know, you're here talking to me. So thank you so much for doing oh, that. Oh, it's my pleasure. It. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor to speak with you. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. And before we go, Tamina, go ahead. What was that website again? If people want to find you, if they have more questions. Because I know I have a couple of people that would definitely... Uh, trying to get more information and probably contact your office. Where, where should they go to find more information and get a hold of you? Thank you so much for asking. Well, they can definitely follow me on social media, but my website is the one-stop shop, which is www.watsonimmigrationlaw.com. It will have my blog. It will have my podcast. It will have my book that you can buy on Amazon or Barnes and & Noble and where um, other places. And, you know, we love, we love talking to people and staying in touch. And you can follow us. We have a Facebook page for both of our law firm as well as mm. our face, uh, uh, podcast. And on the okay. Facebook page, we will often talk about, you know, the guests that we're going to have and, and so forth. So that's where we do our communication for our, our podcast. Okay. So we would love for people to sign up to to any or any and all of them okay sounds great watson immigration law.com uh tamina thank you so much for your time thank you johnny i really appreciate it bye okay have a great weekend bye bye, bye. you've been listening to the point noted podcast with johnny b and rashad b Follow us on Twitter at PT Noted and Instagram at Point Noted. Hit the subscribe and follow button to follow us and check out more episodes of us talking a whole bunch of shit. You've been noted.